All right, if you can turn into your Bibles or the, uh, or the bulletin, we're going to read Judges um, chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join them. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was very who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached for his, with his left hand and drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it, plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, to your, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. No, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, this week I was reading and heard about a new uh, kind of obituary called uh, an, a revenge obituary. And uh, it's using an obituary to settle scores with the departed. And uh, so here is one, uh, Kathleen. Uh, in 1962, she became uh, pregnant by her husband's brother, moved to California. She abandoned her children, Gina and Jay, who were then raised by her parents. She passed away on May 31, 2018, and will now face judgment. She will not be missed by her children, and they understand that this world is a better place without her. And that is not an unusual kind of obituary. There there are a number of revenge obituaries. 
getting even and telling those uh, bad things after you have passed away. I thought, boy, they, you, could, you could say all kinds of bad things about uh, pretty much anybody. And sometimes as you pick up your Bible and you read your Old Testament, it almost seems like a revenge obituary. Like they're telling you all these bad things that these people did. Uh, I look at it a little differently, and I think uh, the scriptures are unusual for religious literature in that they tell you the truth about people. And as you read about these great heroes, you find out that they are flawed human beings, and they have huge problems, and uh, yet God uses them anyway. You're supposed to see that it's God's grace that makes the difference and not the heroic human being that makes the difference. And uh, all of the scriptures point us at these characters, and uh, they are flawed. Um, now, if you take Islam, for instance, a little bit different, their prophets are considered to be perfect and sinless. All the prophets are sinless. And yet, as you read your Bible... None of the prophets are sinless. In fact, they've got pretty big sins. And that even means the leaders of Christianity, the 12 apostles, are they sinless? There's some pretty big sins there. The biggest one may be the Apostle Paul, who we have the most letters from him in our Bible. In contrast to that, we have a Savior who is perfect. And that is a gleaming, bright light. Everyone else is flawed. And so God needed someone to come who was perfect. He sent His own Son, only He would fill the bill. He came into this world, and He has solved our problems, our sinfulness. And uh, that is one of the, the storylines of the book of Judges. Uh, let me just go through uh, some of these things here. Uh, go, back, go back just a second, Lynn. I've entitled this one, God's People Abandon Him. Uh, the other part of the title is God Does Not Abandon His People, or God Remains Faithful to His People Even When They Abandon Him. Okay, if you go to the next slide. Uh, in the book of Judges, there are six major judges, and those are the major judges. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And uh, there is increasing problems with each of them. Othniel starts off being seemingly perfect, but as each judge comes along, they are progressively worse through the book. And the book itself gets progressively more evil and more problems with God's people. And uh, I think it's leading up until God sends David, or brings David on the, on the scene, a man after God's own heart. But we find out that even with David, there are problems. Uh, so here you have increasing problems with uh, these judges. Samson's the worst. And you know his story. If you go to the next slide. Um, this is to put, the, put it into times for you. Related times. So Ruth, the storybook of Ruth, happens in the days of the judges. Samuel is born in the days of the judges. 
and Samuel lives almost his entire life through the days of the judges. Uh, Eli dies in the day of the judges, so as you read about Eli the high priest, that is in the days of the judges. Samson and Samuel are contemporaries. Uh, Samuel leads Israel at the Battle of Mizpah. That is the end of the 20 years of peace that Samson brings. And Saul is made king in 1050. So the book of Judges takes you from where Exodus leads off, 1400. Deuteronomy leaves off, 1400. And takes you to the beginning of the kings in about 1050. Okay, next slide. This is the cycle throughout the book. And each one of the major judges goes through this cycle. The children of Israel do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God sees it, it's evil. So he decides, after a period of time, to punish his people, discipline his people, and so he gives them over to other foreign kings. They are then oppressed. That goes on for a period of time. Finally, they come to their senses and they cry out to the Lord for help. He then sends a deliverer. The Lord raises up a deliverer or a judge, and then the land has peace. And that is repeated throughout the book six times. Go to the next slide. Um, we're talking about Ehud today, and uh, the blue right in the middle is the Dead Sea. And uh, to the right of the Dead Sea are the Moabites. That's who attacks Israel. Uh, to the north of them in modern-day Jordan are the Ammonites, still to the east of the Jordan River. And then to the south of all of that, to the south of that uh, orange at the bottom there, Judah, or mustard color, would be the Amalekites. They're also in this story. Let's go to the next slide. Okay. Um, uh, here you see um, the problems with the judges. So Ehud comes on the scene. We're going to talk about him in a second. Uh, he's, he's very deceptive, and he uses deception to win the day. Barak comes on the scene. He needs assistance, too afraid to do it himself. Gideon comes on the scene, he lacks courage, and then he has personal ambition. He ends up with 70, 70 sons um, and a golden ephod. Jephthah comes on the scene, he's recklessly rash, kills his own daughter. And finally, Samson, he's a complete mess. Okay, so progressive problems. These, these are people God is using. These are the heroes. <laughs> and yet you have this pro uh, progressive, flawed character. And I think you're supposed to look at these flawed characters and you're supposed to go, man, I can't wait for the day when we get a hero that's a great hero. And you keep waiting and you will wait until Jesus comes on the scene. Okay. Let's talk about Ehud. If you take out your Bibles or your bulletins. Notice verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, 
the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So here Israel's at it again. The evil's not defined. But throughout the book, you find out that it includes idolatry, not worshiping God as he commanded. They don't go, they don't celebrate the Passover. They don't go up and sacrifice at the tabernacle. They intermarry with the other Canaanites and surrounding ethnic groups and a host of other sins. Notice they're doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. God knows what you're doing. There's nothing you're doing that he doesn't see. And thank God that he is good and loving and kind and patient. Because he is that, he allows our evil deeds to continue without making us pay immediately. He gives us the opportunity to make things right ourselves. Notice the punishment. God gives, God gives Eglon power over Israel. God does it. And, and Eglon gets help. He gets the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Um, people who would have resented Israel coming into, the, into Canaan. And the Lord caused them to be strong, strong enough that he takes the region of Jericho, the city of Palms, a key area for trade and a key oasis for traveling west, south, or east. And for 18 years, Ehud is in charge of the Israelites, and he gets tribute from them. So notice what the Israelites do, verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. And the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, I suppose if God gives them the power, the only way for you to get out from under that is for God to change the situation. And so God is the one who does it. Um, I think God brings desperate situations into our own lives so that we will cry out to him. How many of you have made it all the way through life without any problems? <laughs> we've all got them. And we've had a pile of them. Some of you more than others. And the problems are designed to drive you to him. To bring you close to him. So that he can be the he can be the savior and he can be the one to shower you with his grace. Then the fourth part of the cycle is God gives them a deliverer. God gives them a deliverer. God gives them Ehud. Now you could translate that. God raised for them a savior. In fact, that is the word that is used often in the book of Judges. God gives for them a Savior. When it talks about Othniel, he saved Israel. He saved Israel. They had problems under control of someone else, so God gave them a Savior, a Moshiach. Very, very similar to Jesus' name, Yeshua in Aramaic and Hebrew. Yeshua, 
Moshiach, Savior, and he saved them. Notice the problem with Eglon. Eglon's left-handed. Yikes. Being left-handed was considered to be a disadvantage. The literal translation is this. He was closed on his right hand. Closed on his right hand or hindered in his right hand. Maybe something was wrong with the hand or maybe he just couldn't use it that well. And so he was left-handed. Now, as you read through this, this is supposed to be funny. This is a funny story with people dying and yet it's supposed to be funny. Ehud is a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin means son of the right hand. <laughs> so he's a left-handed man from the right-handed tribe. <laughs> Remember Benjamin was the name that was given to the, to the youngest child and, he, and uh, it was kind of upsetting to the family. Son of my right hand, Rachel is the favored wife and so this is the son of my right hand, this is the son of my favorite wife. Right? Well, here's a left-handed man from a right-handed tribe. Um, one person said this. He says, now, we use the word gauche. Gauche, uh, meaning an awkward person. It's a French word which means left. So left-handed, French word, that's an awkward person. Or the word for left in Latin is sinister. Which in, which in English we use for someone who's something that's evil or suspicious. Whereas the Latin word for, the Latin word for right is dexter, from which we get dexterity. So this is a person that's capable, and a left-handed person, well, that's a person who's sinister. Um, funny. But it's actually crucial to the story. Um, Eglon, the king, his name literally means bull calf or fat calf. I think they're writing it in the story. It's kind of like calling the leader of North Korea Rocket Man. You've come, you've come up with a funny, funny name or a funny title to give to someone to belittle him and maybe that's what Israel is doing. His name's uh, it's Eglon, <laughs> fat calf. Uh, notice they send him tribute. Now where are we here? What verse are we in? I'm in verse 15. Okay, thank you. Who who was that? Who said that? Thanks for paying attention. Everybody else is not paying attention. Okay, verse 15. The Israelites sent with him with tribute to Eglon. The word for tribute. All these are plays on words in Hebrew. The word for tribute is menka, which is a grain offering. So in Leviticus, when you, when you were to offer an offering, a grain offering, it was called a menka. So here they're bringing their tribute or their menka to Eglon. They're bringing a grain offering to a fat calf. 
which makes the calf fatter. That's why he's fat. You're bringing him minkas. You're bringing him grain offerings. Meant to be funny. Verse 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out. The fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. Now, I call Ehud deceptive. There, I have eight deceptions. Deception one, a double-edged sword, a short cubit in length. So it's sharp, can be used with either hand, and it has a special length. Usually a cubit went from the elbow to the end of the finger. This is probably a short cubit that's going from the elbow to the beginning of the palm. So it's a short sword, and it's got to be a short sword because he's going to strap it to his right thigh. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to always think, well, if I was right-handed, I would want my sword to be on my right hip. Well, I've been watching too many westerns where you take your gun and all you got to do is pull the gun out that like that. But you can't pull a sword. Like if you get a long sword, you can't pull it up. It's got to be on this side of your body so that you can extend your hand and pull it out. Well, he's going to have a short sword strapped to his right thigh so that he can just reach over and pull it out easily. They won't search his right thigh. Won't even think about it. Deception number one, he has a special sword with a special length. Deception number two, he straps it to his right thigh under his clothing. And because he's left-handed, he can pull it out from the from the right thigh, and no one, uh, no one would think to look there for it. Deception number three. Ehud sends away all the other tribute carriers. And I think he sends them away. Number one, he hasn't told anybody what he's doing. He's, uh, he's operating on his own. That's what it seems like in the text. He hasn't called anybody together. He doesn't have soldiers waiting. He doesn't have anybody waiting for when he comes back and he says, I've killed him. He's doing this all on his own. So he gets rid of the other tribute carriers. They might get in his way. It also is easier to get away by yourself. It's also easier to come up to the king when you're by yourself. If you want to have one-on-one -on -one with the king, you can't have five other people with you. 
They're never going to leave you alone with their king. One person who is hindered in his right hand will let him get close to the king. He can't do anything. Deception number four. He leaves when he comes close to the idols. That is when he says he has a message. So he goes to Eglon and he gives him the tribute. He then leaves. He's going back to Israel. And as he's going back to Israel, here he is in Israel, and he goes by the, I don't know what your text calls them, stone statues or maybe quarries. Uh, most of the other places in the Bible that's translated as idols. So he comes by these stone statues, and then all of a sudden he goes, hey, wait just a second. I think I'm getting a message. <laughs> I've got a message for the king. A deception. Almost as if the gods are telling him something. And now he wants to tell that to the king. That's deception number four. The location is deceptive. And doing it in front of the idol gods like they're talking to him. Number five. Deception number five. He says... O king, I have a secret message for you. The funny part is the, tri the, the Hebrew can be translated two ways. You could also translate it, I have a secret thing for you. And he's probably thinking to himself, this is so funny. I do have a secret thing and it's strapped right to my thigh. But I'm going to use the word that can be translated as word or translated as thing. I have a secret message for you, O king. This gets the king to get rid of his attendants. He says, this is the literal Hebrew word, he says, hush. I translated it as hush. Don't say anything until everybody else leaves. Or quiet. And I think your NIV translates it as everybody else out. Get out. Something like that. Deception number six. Ehud then says, I have a word from God for you. Which you could translate as a thing from the gods for you. Again, the double meaning could be a word from God or the thing, the sword I have for you. Now, by the way, he needs the king to understand he's got a message from God because the king is seated. He wants him to stand so he can get the sword into his belly. Deception 6. Deception 7. I'm the only one who thinks this is a deception. Ehud leaves the sword in the king. That way he doesn't have to worry about strapping it back to his thigh. And he doesn't have to bother cleaning it while he tries to make a getaway. He just leaves it there. Number eight. He locks the doors behind him. This gives him the time that he needs to escape. Eight deceptions. Takes us to verse 24. 
After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment when he did not open the doors of the room. They took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. And uh, the ancient Hebrews liked bathroom humor too. And uh, the courtiers are outside and they want to come in, but the doors are locked. And I think there's a smell coming from the room. And they're thinking he is taking care of business. He's in the washroom. So we're going to leave him. And uh, maybe they're thinking it takes a Batman a lot longer to do his business. And so they wait longer than normal. And uh, by the time they go in, they see he's dead. Ehud's made his escape. The final deception has worked. Verse 26, while they waited, Ehud got away, passed by the stone images, escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Now he gathers the people and he says, God is doing this. Yahweh is doing this. So they followed him down, took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Maybe you could translate that, all vigorous and stout. Kind of like their lord, Eglon. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel. The land had peace for 80 years. Okay, I forgot to add this into my introduction. Let me give you my introduction and then talk about what this means. Number one, in every one of these stories, we see that the next generation must be one to the Lord. The next generation rebels. The job's not done when you are one. We have to win the next generation too. The battle for the hearts and minds of people has to be done again and again. Number two, God's people too often want the culture and the religion and the life of those who are around them, who are not God's people. And when that is what you want and desire, you are abandoning God. Number three, God punishes his people by sending foreign invaders and excessive taxation, if not downright threat, threat, downright theft. And if you love money, then money is what God will take from you. The people of God turn to prayer when all else fails. And of course, misery and suffering get God's people to cry out for help. God uses our problems and our difficulties to keep us close to him. Number five, God sends help in the form of deliverers or judges. These military civic leaders are a diverse group spiritually and physically. But God stretches out his hand to save his people through imperfect tools. And he wants to do that today through you. This book is about willingness to serve God. Who will stand up and serve him? Who is willing? 
And here you have a case where Ehud, the left-handed man, was the man who was willing. Gideon, the man from the smallest tribe, is the man who is willing. Jephthah, the man who was born from a prostitute, he's the man who is willing. And Samson, the man deeply flawed, is the man who serves God even though he seems to be not willing at all. But this book is about will you stand up and will you serve God? It calls Ehud a savior because he's willing to serve God, do what needs to be done. I was uh, sad this week to read this. This comes from uh, the end of June. And uh, this family had gone to a park, Sequoia National Park in California. And while they were there, uh, the five-year-old son fell into the water, uh, fell into the river. And so without hesitation, the mom and the dad, they jumped in after him. And so did his uncle. His uncle was Victor Mesqueda, 22 years old. He didn't know how to swim. And he jumped in after the little five-year-old. Well, it didn't take very long for the child to be swept away by the water along with, his, along with his uncle. His uncle got to him and somehow was able to lift him above the water every once in a while. The mother and the father couldn't get to him. While they were being swept down the river, uh, three fishermen tried to help them. They couldn't help. Finally, as they were being swept down the current, Victor, the uncle who couldn't swim, managed to take the child and throw him toward the shore. He got him close enough to the shore that his father was able to grab him. Along with the help of others there, they did uh, CPR and saved his life. Victor was swept down the stream, lost his life. family says he is Vincent's angel. He's a hero to all of us forever. And we will forever be grateful for his courage, bravery, and unselfish act. We will always miss you, Victor, and you will forever live in our hearts. Uh, that's the story of the book of Judges. God is looking for people who will come forward, be willing to help, stand up and at sacrifice to them, to themselves, help his people. He's asking for us to do that. Are you willing to serve the Lord? Finally, as we sit around the Lord's table, our God looked down from on heaven and he saw that we were sinful and no hope to be had. And as we cried out for help, he did what only he could do. He raised up a deliverer, a savior. But this time he sent his own son to do it. Because to save us from our sin took a perfect sacrifice and a perfect Savior.
And only Jesus Christ would fit the bill. And he came to this planet and he lived and he died and he went to the cross for you, for your sin. That's what we're celebrating as we sit around this table. One more application. As we read the book of Judges, we read about a time when Israel's heroes would take a sword and go out and fight physically for, for God's people. It's not that way today. We live on the other side of Jesus. Today, he calls for heroes, men and women, who will take the word of God and give it to others, even though they might be hurt, ridiculed, martyred, or lose their lives. It's a different day. Because now we serve and follow a Savior who went to the cross. Um, I saw in the news this week that China made fun of the United States for turning the other cheek. And China says, uh, we won't turn the other cheek. We're going to punch back. Christians don't punch back. Because we're not like Ehud. We're not like Gideon in that way. We're like Jesus. We're like Jesus. That's who we follow. A different way of serving God.